Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, your host on Society Bites Radio. We were speaking with Jennifer Toon last time, who was willing to come back and talk to us some more. Jennifer was in prison in Texas as a child of 15. She's been out of prison for about three and a half years, having spent 20 years approximately inside. It's good to be able to speak about your experience, experiences in prison, Jennifer. And um, I'd like to have you tell us uh, what life has been like since you were released. Was it difficult to find work and housing? Oh, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Extremely. Uh, when I was released uh, this second time, um, uh, they put me on what is called a super intensive supervision program uh, with parole. And I had about two years left on my sentence. And this would the, the monitor, it's an ankle monitor, but it's oh. it also uh, my brother says it looked like a VCR on my hip. It was the uh, very old school um, kind of cell phone that they could call you at any moment um, to ask, what are you doing? Where are you at? Um, so they put me on this and it was a minimum of a year. And it was extremely strict. Uh, You have to write out a a schedule once a week to get approved from your parole officer. And the only places you could go were um, work, uh, AA, and, um, you know, any type of mandated classes and maybe a trip to the store once a week. And Mm. you had to get permission to go to church. You had to get a letter from the pastor that said it's okay if you were there. And um, it was extremely disheartening. And it made everything that was already difficult, even more so. Um, thank goodness I had uh, a place to stay at my parents, but they didn't understand, you know, they're, they're older and, and they didn't understand just how serious that monitor was. So when I couldn't, I wasn't even allowed to leave the house on the weekends unless it was to AA. I couldn't go outside. Hmm. I had to schedule time to be in my own yard. Um, and I just remember being so depressed because uh, looking for a job, you know, people would say, well, can you come in tomorrow? I've got some time. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I have to schedule this out a week in advance um, to, to be able to come do an interview. But I did eventually land um, a job at a fast food restaurant and then at a, um, a Goodwill. Mm-hmm. So I was working uh, part time at Subway and uh, full time at Goodwill. Very you know, minimum, minimum wage jobs. And, um, I finally was able to find an apartment complex in my area that would rent to me. And it really was because the lady that was the manager at the time, she goes, well, our policy really says that as long as it's been over 10 years, but typically our unspoken policy is that we don't allow people with your charges to be here. Um, she said, you know, because they're considered violent, and I just, I just broke down. I said, ma'am, please, do you know anyone that will rent to a woman that's trying to put her life together, working two minimum wage jobs? And uh, she goes, I'll call you back. And, and she did. And so I was able um, to, to get an apartment in my own name um, in rural East Texas, which was an absolute miracle. Um, but, you know, when I moved to Austin, this being this large liberal city, I <laughs> Oh my gosh, it was so hard to find a place to live. And I eventually had to move in um, with a friend uh, who had a landlord that was a private landlord that, that didn't, that was a recovery coach. So uh, she worked at a sobriety center. So she would, she would rent out to people who were in recovery. And 
you know, it's just been a nightmare in terms of, of housing. So where are you now in Austin? Austin, Texas. You are. Okay. Um, and in terms of how did you afford um, the rent on the minimum wage you were earning? Well, um, <laughs> at the end of the month, I would have a little bit money left for food. And, uh, and I'm talking pretty bare minimum eating. So it, it, it did, it took up all, I have, I was able to save some money at least while I was living uh, with my parents. So I mm -hmm. did have a little bit of security, uh, but no, it, it, it basically ate up all my money and I had a little bit left over to buy some very basic things uh, at the grocery store. Um, it was hard. It was very hard. And I think the worst part of it was that I'm working part-time at one place and full time at the other, and I would leave in the morning at six and come back at eleven. Mm. And I didn't have a day off because I would still work part time um, at the other job on the two days I was given off at the other. And so I was just exhausted, wow. and I would have to really force myself to sit up and write um, because that was the only thing that kept, that really kept me sane during that time. Now, how long did parole last with that it, G, GPS? Yeah, so I did get the monitor off after a year. Um, oh. I, I had a very strict parole officer, but she, I think she really respected my efforts. So she did everything she could in her power to get that thing off, and it did come off. And then I was on parole for about another year. And um, then my sentence, I am actually free uh, for the first time in 27 years um, of any type of supervision or, or um, you know, the state of Texas peering into my window to see what I'm doing. So it's, it's been, it's a, it's a very, it's a feeling I don't ever want to lose again. I finally voted for the first time in my entire life. Mm. Um, so yeah, finally off supervision. So that's it. Good. So um, the minimum wage jobs led to, I guess where you are now, or was there something in between? So I, while I was working at these places and I was on my monitor, um, living in my very sparse, uh, <laughs> apartment, um, I connected with a lot of, uh, people who were doing advocacy in Austin, uh, for formerly incarcerated folks. And, um, I just, I just infused myself into every group I could find on Facebook. Um, Hey, my name's Jennifer. <laughs> you know, this is what I want to work on. And, and I, I really got to know people that way. And uh, there was a group that was uh, created called the Statewide Leadership Council um, by a group of formerly incarcerated people that that had worked on policy uh, and stuff at the legislature before. And so it was through this group and their kind of training and guidance um, and us sharing resources uh, that I found this job uh, at the Coalition of Texans with Disabilities through a fellowship. And, um, you know, I, I was still publishing things. I'd started publishing my writing and, and that certainly helped, uh, you know, to be able to, to send uh, out an article that I'd written to, you know, kind of let people know who I was and what my talents and skills were. So it was really through um, just my own getting to know people uh, through social media and my advocacy through that um, that led me to, to Austin and this wonderful job. 
So tell us about the Coalition of Texans with Disabilities. What is their mission and what is your role there? Yeah, so we're the largest and oldest uh, cross-disability nonprofit in the state, which means that we work on all disabilities. Um, you know, there's groups that work solely on autism or, mm-hmm. or um, for the blind, but, but we're, we're a cross-disability organization, so we work on everything. Um, and every possible issue uh, that you can think of, my role is to work on policies related to mental health, uh, especially in education and uh, in the criminal justice system. So um, this past legislative session, I testified on bills uh, about, you know, disabilities in county jails, um, making sure that students who are in special, who have, are in special education, um, you know, get their behavior inter- intervention plans updated, just a, a wide variety of things in both of those areas. And can you be more specific um, about what exactly does this coalition do? Are there specific issues that they are highlighting? Oh yeah. Uh, so overall, um, we are we work on state policy, uh, mainly um, legislative things. So we're working on voting. Uh, I know that everybody's heard that the state of Texas uh, has. <laughs> pass laws to make voting extremely difficult um, for certain communities, and one of those communities being um, people with disabilities, making it hard to, to, to mail in ballots. So that's been a huge focus um, of, of our agency. Now, I, that's not the area I work on, um, but that's been a huge priority. Um, parking accessibility, uh, Medicaid, uh, care uh, attendants um, are often paid you know, they're doing work uh, that is extremely hard and difficult caring for people, and they're getting paid as much as I was at Subway. And it's it's outrageous. And so we work a lot on um, attendant wages. And then, like I said, um, me and my boss, we work on uh, making sure policies at, at school uh, help children with disabilities. We're seeing a really a huge uptick of um, kids of color and kids with disabilities uh, being attacked at school by teachers, uh, by staff. And um, there is something in Texas law that shields uh, people that work for the school district or for the school um, for being prosecuted from that. They, they get more of a lead way uh, than even parents do. And, and we've worked really hard this last session um, to get that penal code changed uh, so that we can hold teachers and other staff members accountable um, because it's often like I said, kids with disabilities and kids of color that that are on the receiving end of that violence. Gee, that's, I, I don't understand that. Um, I haven't heard anything about that. What can you tell us a little bit more? Way, way back in my early, early life or my other life, I guess, um, I taught children with learning disabilities for 30 years and started a program in a school district that had nothing. We're talking 1970 before federal laws went into effect. So that's very disturbing to hear what you're saying. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that issue? Yeah. So um, what we see happening is that uh, a, a child will have a mental health crisis or um, perhaps a manifestation of their disability, you know, like autism. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the 
they're either inappropriately restrained um, or they are just assaulted. Um, and because that penal code keeps, it, it shields them from prosecution, um, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to get these bad actors out of the schools. Um, because what happens is that the school district will just pass them on to somebody else. And, uh, and then, so these children are basically fed into the school to prison pipeline, right? Because what happens is that the school or the teacher or the staff member to kind of, excuse my language, but to cover their ass, they'll charge the student with assault. Sure. So, so here we have, um, you know, a, a six-year-old, um, being charged with, with assault. Uh, we had a six-year-old, I believe it was in Fort Bend County that was put in a chokehold. Uh, and it's like, what in the hell are we doing in the state of Texas? Um, when it comes to our kids and, and we see this just certain children, right? Like, like I mentioned, this, this is really, really affecting, um, kids of color, uh, kids with disabilities, transgender children. Um, it's this, Again, it goes back to what we talked about last time, and I think it's this inherent uh, belief uh, that these children um, don't deserve anything better or they are less than other children. And uh, this belief that they're inherently violent, uh, I think that contributes quite a bit to it. So do you feel that your organization is having some success? Have you made a difference, do you think? I think that in terms of awareness and just continuing to, to, to chip away at this, I think we have great success. Um, but, you know, as, as, as one can imagine, trying to get anything done in our political uh, mm. climate here is it can feel so impossible. It can feel like, why are we even trying? Um, but it, it's those of us that, that see these issues, um, you know, we may move the needle on the conversation just a half an inch, but we just have to keep pushing it. Um, we are working on a national coalition um, called No Kids in Cuffs. Uh, that's hmm. a good example of that, um, trying to also help find federal legislation to make sure that children um, you know, who are under 10 are not being handcuffed and zip tied and sprayed in the face with mace uh, because this is there. There is no law to prevent that um, in the state of Texas. And, and that happens to our children all the time. It, when you say, you know, it, there is no law to prevent this in Texas, is that true across the country or? Well, I, I think it, it, it certainly is. Um, you know, that's why we've put together uh, this with other organizations, this national coalition. There's some states uh, that do things better. Uh, and then there's obviously uh, states that, that have um, a, a political uh, climate that is a more or authoritarian, more dictatorship type of um, crime and punishment kind of attitude. And, and that's where you see it the worst. Wow. Very, very disturbing. I, I was going to ask you um, about kids in school, and we know that more children are struggling, some of it uh, because of the pandemic, um, but, you know, for other reasons as well. 
how, how can schools offer more support or programs uh, to help these kids? Uh, what do you feel is needed? Well, I, I think that having, it's a lot, we speak a lot to teachers groups and, and sometimes they can be the most oppositional when it comes to um you know, like that penal code, for instance, uh, and, and one of their things that they say a lot, and I think we hear this from police officers, is I can't do everything. You know, I can't teach and be a social worker and be a nurse and, and be all of this. I need help. Um, let me do what I do best and um, bring someone on board that, that does what they do best. So I, I think if we had a, a real, like, because I mentioned, um, I think last time that my symptoms manifested at school first, you know what I mean? And, and teachers and educators, they didn't really know what to do with that or how to identify that or deal with that. And I think school is such a, an opportunity, um, to kind of give a child a a whole service, a, a wholeness, if that makes sense. Like, you know, some people have argued, well, you know, social workers and, and um, psychiatrists or psychologists or, you know, people of, 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 of that education, they shouldn't be in the schools. Um, and there was some pushback to adding mental health counselors to schools um, in Texas. Uh, you know, don't indoctrinate my children. And, and you know, <laughs> I could go on about that. But if, if we could provide children uh, at this first point of contact, that's what I like to call it, and give them wraparound services of everything, not just education, but, but wholeness and, and mental health services. I think that we'd see very different outcomes. I know I would have had different outcomes. Um, but two, I think an, another good step was, would be to get school resource officers out of schools. Um, you know, I know that schools need to have some form of, of security, but those police officers and that presence of law enforcement at the schools all the time escalate stuff. Um, you got kids from, from other uh, backgrounds that they don't see someone, when they see someone in uniform, they don't see someone they trust. They see right. someone to be feared. Um, and And I think that would be a good step to kind of move away from, from, um, this, I don't know what the term is, Harriet, this, this mm -hmm. whole, and I think it affects the whole country, this, um, this firmness, this, this hardness, uh, and I think they call it school hardening, um, instead of the approach of more services and more mental health supports, more social workers, more um, because that, exactly a restorative justice. Restorative and, and, justice. And, and in places in Texas, that is often looked at as a soft, weak approach. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, who suffers the most are our children. Yeah, true. I want to return to your, your writing. Um, very recently, as I mentioned last time, we had a guest on the program who went to prison at 14. And, and writing was a lifeline for her. She also is a published writer. And um, I wanted to ask you, what informs your writing and how do you decide what to write about? Well, Harriet, I never run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can talk and talk uh, about anything for forever. Um, so 
Yeah, I've got a, a whole wealth of, of 20 years, 27 years experience of, of the criminal justice system. Um, and, and I like to I like to think of those experiences. You know, at the time I would go through them and be like, why am I going through this? You know, and and I think now I look back on it as it's kind of like having a, a little toolbox. And when an issue comes up, it's like, hold on, I, I've got something for that. I let me dig through it. And here's I've actually experienced that. And, um, you know, that's what informs my writing is the the lived experience. And as I've worked in policy and, you know, being in rooms with highly educated people that I do value and they're wonderful people. Um, but a lot of times when things are put on paper or policies or, you know, processes are put together, it's like, that sounds wonderful. That's not how that works. <laughs> like, um, that's not how day to day at the county jail works. So the officer is not going to do that. You know, just being able to add that voice of lived experience. I think that you need both. You need the kind of more academic, um, data driven policy uh, driven thing, but you need that person that understands the system on a, in a lived experience way to kind of keep that on the right track. Um, and that's what guides my writing. It's wonderful. Well, I wanted to mention your essay that drew me to you. Um, it's called Invisible Scars. And it was published in November of 2021. Um, what was the theme of that? And right behind that, I wonder if you plan to write a book one day. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was sitting there earlier uh, last year and uh, we were talking about women's program, me and somebody else. And I was just uh, thinking about all the stuff we went through and, and uh, we were sitting in a group listening to some gentlemen talk about their um, incarceration, uh, which is very different. There's a lot of similarities, but there are things that are so different. Um, There's a lot of physical violence. There's a lot of overt violence and, and manipulation and, and retaliation. And it was like <clears throat> me and my friend, um, who I believe you'll be speaking to, uh, we, you know, we, we just talked about like, you know, it's so hard to articulate to people what this did to us because they don't, uh, they don't, they don't see it as abuse, but because it can be very covert and it can be very, um, non-physical, so it's like, well, then what did you really suffer? <laughs> well, let me tell you what I suffered. This uh, psychological uh, terror every single day, relentlessly, nonstop, 100% of the time. Um, and, you know, an outsider, you know, may see some of that um, and be like, well, I don't really understand. And, you know, somebody had told me that they shared it with their mother And her mother was like, honey, I finally get it. Like Mm. all the stuff you've been trying to tell me, like, I get it now. And that was the point of the article to finally try to get people to understand um, that the ways that we suffer from from violence while we're incarcerated as women is a a deep psychological um, abuse that the staff um, do to us there. And in a way that they want us to feel good about it so they can feel good about it, if that makes sense. And I, I hope I articulated that um, yes. in the article. Yes, you certainly did. And and we only have a couple minutes. 
Um, do you plan to write a book one day? I would love to. Um, it's kind of scary, right? The, the prospect of that, that's uh, not just a lot of work, but a lot of digging deep uh, into some stuff that I don't know if I'm ready to talk about. Um, I have a very good friend, Carrie Blakenshire, um, that she published a book. It's coming out this year. Um, and it, I just watching her go through that process, I was like, she's like, I'm so, this is so much more emotionally, um, uh, intense, uh, than just reporting, um, you know, we're doing an essay. So I would love to, but I, I know that it's going to require a lot of deep, uh, introspection that I don't know if I'm ready for. <laughs> when you, when you're ready, I'm sure you'll write the book. So next week, by the way, we will welcome a friend of yours, Alexa Garza, who also spent time in prison, which is how you both met. And uh, we'll be speaking to her uh, and getting her perspective on her experiences as well. So I I think that you have given us a a picture of what's going on in Texas and hopefully uh, with hard work and perseverance, things will change. But, you know, a little at a time, as you say, no, no giant steps, but baby steps. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate your time today and last week. And it was good to meet you after having read your essay. And people can find it online. Just uh, type in Invisible Scars, Jennifer Toon, and it should come up. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you again, Jennifer, so very, very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Good to see you. This is Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I'm Harriet Handel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.